0: Welcome. How's everybody's Christmas? Good? It went fast, didn't it? It's already past Christmas. How crazy is that? Um, and in a couple days, we've got New Year's Day. We've got January 1st, and so I thought today we'd take that opportunity just to just discuss New Beginnings. So today's sermon title is New Beginnings. Um, but before we get started, let's pray. Whew. Lord, thank you for this season that we're in right now that we get to Um, discuss and talk about and understand the peace and the hope that is offered with Christmas and the birth of Jesus. And now looking to 2015, I know that today you've got an individual message for us. Everybody in here you want to speak to uniquely and individually, and I just pray that we would all have the availability to be able to hear from you, the emotional and spiritual availability to hear the message that you're speaking to us this morning. In your name, Amen. Amen. So we still have a couple days, but has anybody thought about their New Year's resolutions yet? Okay, a couple people. New Year's resolutions are tough, man. I'm I'm having a hard time with these things. Because it's not like Lent commitments, right? Lent commitments, at least you have an end date. (laughs) New Year's resolutions is like, I'm not going to have a carb for the rest of my life. It's like, all right, dial it back just a little bit. Um, I actually read the stat the other day. Did you know that 30% of all annual gym memberships are sold between January 1st and 2nd? (laughs) 30%. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And if that's you this year, hey, good for you. Go get them. That's that's awesome. I'm not hating. you got to start sometime, right? And that's great. But you know who that's annoying to? Not me. It's annoying to the people who are already working out 14 times a week. And then for the first week in January, they have to deal with the bandwagoners, you know? The leaders of the resolution, I like to call them. And you can always tell the people who aren't gonna make it in the workout gym, you know what I mean? They're the people with no concept of technique, but they're on the row machine, just (laughs) floundering and sweating. Probably have a no fear (laughs) t-shirt. Or you know the people who are doing push-ups while they're waiting for the machine to open? Uh, let's just, all right. Don't want to waste a second in here. Okay, take it easy, Val. You got the rest of your life. But <laughs> I mean, I'm not hating on it. I've honestly, I've had my fair share of resolutions that didn't pan out. Anybody here ever heard of P90X? Yeah, yeah. I did something very similar. I did P9X. Yeah, I recommend it. Instead of working out for 90 days, you work out for nine days. A lot less pain, <laughs> plus you don't have to deal with all those pesky results, you know, your same clothes still fit, it's so much better. That's the way to go. But we look towards 2015 and we say, all right, 2015 is, we're excited for it. We're excited for new beginnings, we get that gym membership and we get pumped up and we get, you know, jazzed because simply the future holds the hope for something better. Right? The future holds the hope for something better. And God has designed that. There's nothing wrong with beginnings. God has created beginnings. Every night we rest and every morning there's a new beginning. Right, The sun rises with anticipation and hope and excitement. And not just days, but weeks and months, seasons, years. There's something powerful about beginnings. And we get it. We try to leverage that. We try to use the energy from that all the time. Nobody quits smoking on a Thursday, you know? (laughs) You quit smoking on a Monday. It's a new beginning, a new day, a new week. And so a lot of us look towards 2015 and get excited. This is our new beginning. But if we get excited and we start to look towards 2015, that also means that we have to wrap up 2014, And for some of us, that's great, you know? You got your little year-in-review Facebook video that you tag 99 (laughs) people in. I've already been tagged in 40 of those. I haven't even done my own. But for some of us, 2014 was a tough one. For a lot of us, 2014 was a rough year, you know? Heartache. We had a lot of heartache in 2014. Or we're not perfect, right? A lot of us messed up. This past year. A lot of us messed up big this past year. Said something you wish you could take back or did something you wish you could undo. You know? Missed opportunities. Messed up at work. Hurt the ones that you love. So, for those of us who resonate with that, you look at 2015 and you say, what's attractive is it's a possibility to start over. Clean slate, okay, back to the past, eyes forward. This year's going to be different. This year's going to be better. 2015, and you get excited maybe because the future holds the hope for something better. But this is real life, and I would bet that a lot of us found ourselves in this exact same spot last year giving ourselves the exact same pep talk last year. It's 2013, and you're going into 2014 and almost trying to talk yourself into it. You'd say, this year's going to be different. This year's going to be better. Instead, 2014 had disappointments. You know? People disappointed you. You disappointed yourselves. And after too many disappointments, if you're anything like me, you just kind of give up. Kind of lose hope. You know? There's only so many times you can start over before you just start thinking, what's the point? I'm just going to screw it up again. We're going to look at a story today in the Bible of a woman who finds herself in this very place, this place of utter despair, this place of, of hopelessness. So I want you to picture the scene, if you will. This woman gets up in the morning, and it's the cool of morning. And she wants to go outside, but she can't, not yet. So she sits around, waits, almost counts the seconds, turns into minutes, turns into hours. And as the time goes by, it gets hotter and hotter and drier and dustier. And you can feel the heat coming in on the walls, but she still has to wait. Finally, at about one o'clock in the afternoon, the hottest time of the day, finally, she's thinking, all right, it's finally time. It's finally my time. So she walks over, and she picks up this big earthen clay jar that's heavy even when it's empty, and she puts it up on her shoulder, starts moving towards the door. She throws open the door, and almost immediately, just this blast of heat and dust hits her. She squints, but she pushes through out into the street, she looks both ways, making sure nobody's there, and nobody is. Nobody would be outside this time of day, not in that heat. And then slowly, dejected, alone, she starts to make her way to the outskirts of the town. So this woman is going to fetch water. and This isn't a good time of the day to fetch water. In fact, it's not a good time of the day to be outside. And she could have gone earlier in the day she was up, But if she went earlier in the day, that would have meant that she'd have to face the other women in the town. The woman in the story is the town's outcast. She's the town's bad girl. And the man that she's living with right now isn't her husband. In fact, she's been married five times before. Five times before. Five times she's tried to start new. Five times she's tried to build a new life for herself. And now she's given up on marriage, given up on happiness, given up on hope. And she's kind of recognized that there's no new start for me. There's no new beginning. She's accepted her lot as this outcast. And she has essentially learned how to live without hope. Does anybody resonate with that, the idea of hopelessness? You know, hopelessness doesn't just have to be depression or thoughts of suicide. It can be, but it's not just that. Hopelessness is when you lose hope of something changing, right? When somebody says things can be different and you say, yeah, right, that's losing hope. For a lot of us, the disappointments that came with 2014 leave us in this place, and we say, there's just no new start. Maybe for me, there's no new beginning. If you've got your Bibles, if you turn to 2 Corinthians 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're going to look at um, one of the most radical claims in all of Scripture today. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation, the Greek word that's used here is kitesis, K-T-I-S-I-S, kitesis, and it is talking about the creation itself and the act of creation. And so inside of this, it's essentially saying when somebody commits their life to Christ, when they forfeit their life to Christ, then Jesus begins a new act of creation in their life. A brand new identity, a brand new person. So it's not just a reshaping, it's not just a rehabilitation. The old has completely passed, the new has come. You are a completely new being. Now for me, that's hard to wrap my mind around Because here on earth, if I try to start over, I still have to deal with old consequences. I've got to deal with old reputations, right? But this is saying in in the spirit realm, you are a completely different person. A new kateses, a new creation. Um. If you're in your Bible, look at the preceding verses. Paul actually explains how this is possible. In verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. How is it possible for us to have the new creation? Because one has died, therefore all all have died. We just celebrated the birth of Jesus, right? Jesus, who is God's son, came to earth. He lived a perfect life, and then he died. And when he died, when he was put to death, it said that he took all the punishment for our sins, everything that we've done, every bit of guilt, every bit of Uh, doubt every bit of bitterness and resentment and lust and adultery everything in our lives it says that jesus essentially writes it down on this tab everything you've ever done everything you ever will do and then at the end the very bottom he writes paid for taken care of it is finished So when Jesus does that and he says that he takes all of that on himself, that one died, therefore all have died, why? Look at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Why did he do that? Why did he take everything? Why did one die and therefore all died? So that we could get our focus off of ourselves, we are no longer trying to achieve righteousness. We no longer have to do things perfectly and try to earn our way to heaven. He says, I'm taking care of all that. I'm taking all the punishment, all the burden on myself. Therefore, was it say, your focus can be on Christ. Now, our focus can be completely on worshiping and drawing near to God. That's what baptism symbolizes, right? This idea of dying and raising Old life has died. We are buried in the water like Jesus was buried in the tomb. Then we stand up out of the water like Jesus stood up out of the grave. And as we stand up, we're a new person, a new creation, a new kateces. So now in our story, essentially, Jesus is going to offer this new life. This is the interaction where he offers the new life to this hopeless woman. So the woman approaches the well, and she sees a man sitting there, and it's Jesus. And there are two reasons why Jesus shouldn't talk to this woman. One is it wasn't proper social etiquette that day for a man just to talk to a woman, especially when her husband or her father wasn't there. So the single scene was pretty rough in that day. Uh, Two is this was a Samaritan woman. And Jews just didn't interact with Samaritans. They looked down on the Samaritans. They would call them the half-breed. They were half-Jewish, half-non-Jewish. And so two reasons why Jesus shouldn't interact, but he's Jesus, so he does what he wants. Um, If you're in your Bible, turn to John chapter 4, we're in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink This living water that gives eternal life. And there are a number of Old Testament texts that refer to God as the fountain of living water. So when Jesus is referencing the living water, he's essentially saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm what you need in your life. But she doesn't understand the reference. She doesn't get it and actually at this point the conversation takes a pretty intense turn and jesus starts to get really personal really fast and he starts to bring up all of her shortcomings starts to bring up all of her failures he knows about and brings up her past five marriages and her current living situation and with each word it just seems like he's forcing this door of pain open wider and wider Finally, she starts to maybe understand a little bit what he's talking about with his new beginnings, with the offer of new life, but it's just too painful for her. She can't do it. To go to that place means that she has to revisit her failures, her imperfections, and she's not willing to do that. So she closes the door on that conversation. She actually redirects the conversation in another way. She just can't deal with it. Inside of your outline our first fill in the blank today is let go of the shame. Let go of the shame. You know, the first case ever of shame in the world was in the Garden of Eden. It was with Adam and Eve. And I think it was Genesis 3 when Adam first realizes he was naked. And does anyone know what his default reaction was? To hide, he hid. Shame makes you hide. Shame makes you believe that you're unusable. And shame isn't from God. Look at Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse is so incredibly important. Because if you're anything like me, the second I mess up, The second I do something, my default reaction is shame. My default reaction is guilt. I remember growing up and I would just do something knuckle-headed, right? Cuss somebody out or do something stupid. And then I would just feel this horrible guilt and shame. And I would try to be so good for the next month. Sure enough, I'd do something dumb again and I'd go back to this place of guilt and shame. This is why I bring that up. I bring it up, why why it's important that we let go of the shame is this, because if we lump together brokenness and shame, if those are connected for us, if we can't separate brokenness and shame, then we have this tendency, it's our defense mechanism, it's our survival instinct to minimize the brokenness in our life, right? Right? If we're broken and we mess up and that makes us feel shame, then we either say to ourselves, I'm not that broken, or we refuse to acknowledge it even exists. I don't need a savior. I'm not that sinful. I'm not that broken, because it brings that up. And here's what that's saying. That sin's not a big deal. And if sin's not a big deal, then grace isn't a big deal. And grace is a huge deal. God sent his one and only son to earth to die for grace. Another way to say that is it's not until we understand the severity of sin that we can grasp the magnitude of grace. I have a feeling that God is going to highlight in our lives brokenness, an imperfection of 2014. And when he does, he's not saying, Graham, this is who you are and guilt and shame or to you, this is who you are. He doesn't guilt and shame. He highlights brokenness so that he can call attention to the power of his grace. Um, an extension of his grace, hold on one second, can I take a sip of this? Sorry. On this the day of my daughter's wedding. That's what I feel like. <laughs> okay. What I love about, about grace, a lot of times the way it manifests, the way it plays out, is the extension of graces that he uses broken, imperfect people throughout the course of history to be the world changers. You know? That's 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 how he calls attention to himself. Our second fill-in here is leverage the lessons. Leverage the lessons. Another thing that we tend to think is, all right, new kateses, new creation, I'm forgiven. If that's the case, all that garbage is behind me and I'm looking forward. I don't want to think about that, right? I'm, I'm new creation. I don't want to think we're all, we're all here. Forget about that. And I think that when we do that, a lot of times we can miss something powerful that God wants to do. Some of you guys know my wife, Kristen. Um, If you haven't met her out in the patio after the service, just look for the hottest chick out there. That's her. Um, But Kristen is just the warmest, most bubbly person that I know. And you'd never guess it when you meet her, but Kristen actually has a pretty rough past. And um, I talked to her, and she gave me permission just to give this snapshot into her life, but um, at the lowest point in Kristen's life, she found herself addicted to coke and meth and with depression and with thoughts of suicide. And I have never met anybody in my entire life, honestly, that I think has grasped and embraced the truth of new creation like my wife. She fully knows that she is a brand new person. She operates in it every single day, and it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. But she very easily could have said, this is my new, my new identity, this is my new katesis, and blah on that old, but she didn't, and I'm glad she didn't, and here's why. I have watched Kristen connect with drug addicts in a way that only she could. She has this instant connection and she offers insight and wisdom and truth to them that only she could. I've seen her sit down with people wrestling with depression and she has cried with them and she has prayed with them and God has used her to save lives. Could it be is it possible that God wants to use the brokenness and heartbreak and imperfection of 2014 to call attention to his grace, to bring glory to himself? God is writing a story in you He's writing a story in your life, and other people are reading that story and are turned to God because of it. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if we ripped out the chapter that was titled Grace? So, inside of this conversation that Jesus has with this woman at the well, finally she understands who this is. She understands the Messiah. And so, turn in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, him, Jesus, to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the same woman who earlier that day was avoiding human contact of any kind. She waited until the hottest part of the day to even go outside so she wouldn't face anybody. And now she's running to the town because the focus is no longer on her. The focus is on Christ. And with this new kateses, this new creation, she has the boldness. And because of the boldness to run into town and say, could this be the Christ, an entire town is introduced to the glory of God. My son, Gage, turned two a couple days ago, and he loves pushing his own stroller. I don't get it. I don't know what the infatuation is. It's a total nightmare because he can't see anything, right? He's doing this, and it's just right here. And he's got this natural slice in his walk. He always veers to the right. And so I have to walk with him, and I have to hold it. And every time I let go, he's doing this number. I'm like, all right. But if he sees me holding it, he goes, Gage, do it. I'm like, take it easy, pal. You're two, you know. And so he keeps pushing. He starts to veer, and I try to quickly grab it. And he slaps my hand away. No, Daddy, Gage, do it. I'm like, all right, pal, you asked for it, right? So sure enough, veers off to the right, ends up in the mud. Then he goes, help you, help you. He can't say help me yet. I was thinking, is this not a perfect depiction of us? Is that not a perfect depiction of us? If life is the stroller, we can't see where we're going. right? We're here. I can't see two weeks ahead, let alone two months or two years. There's so many times that I'm just saying, Graham, do it. And God's saying, are you sure, man? I think you're going to want me, want me with you on this one. <laughs> no, Daddy, Graham, do it and I end up in the mud. 2015 is not about us wrestling life to where we think it should go. 2015 isn't about us taking control and making resolutions that'll finally get our life on the right track. Look at your third fill-in. Third fill-in is lean into God's power lean into God's power. Proverbs 3:5 says, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding." God has a brilliant plan for you in 2015. He's got a plan to connect you more intimately with himself than ever before. He has a plan to use your story to bring glory to himself. And it's available because he offers a new cateses, a new creation. And all he's asking is that you simply let go of the shame. Acknowledge the power of grace. Leverage the lessons. Recognize the story that he's writing in your life. And then finally, that we lean into God's power. Quit trying to push your own stroller. Trust the path that God has for your life. Let's pray. Lord, as we head into 2015, Father, I just believe that you have power for us. I believe that you have a path for us. Father, you offer a new beginning, and for some of us it seems too good to be true. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his death, you offer us a completely new identity. Thank you, Father.